from Wakefield, it's the Nolan Cart Night Show, inviting you to join Nolan and his guest this week to add Murphy to the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Nolan. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the show. I hope you've enjoyed the last two weeks with the different episodes we've done and split them up into two for, for different content reasons. Nevertheless, if you've enjoyed this week's or the last few weeks' episodes, do us a favor, subscribe, comment, share, all that fun jazz that they tell you to do so it helps boost the algorithm. Nevertheless, though, we have an amazing guest and it's such a privilege to have him on to speak to some projects that he's been part of that are celebrating major anniversaries this year, which I'm sure he never fathomed would be possible back when he did it. Nevertheless, I will do my little intro because, you know, of course, everyone deserves their pop in circumstance. Although originating from the Evergreen State, my guest this week has rightfully found his place amongst the, this generation's most creative minds when it comes to putting pen to paper, although now some would say fingers to keys. For the last 40 years, Tad Murphy has de- been demonstrating the ability to stretch the laws of creativity and possibility to some of the film's greatest examples of art. Whether you're on a deep sea expedition, saving the planet, finding your true self, and many more, who better do this than our guest this week? It is our highest honor and privilege to be joined by Washington State's Jules Verne, the one and only Mr. Tab Murphy. Tab, how are you today? <laughs> Washington State's Jules Verne. Now, that is one I have not heard before, but uh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's awesome. Well, it, it's always uh, an interesting thing to talk to people, or even just in general, to, to have really creative people on. So this is a, a treat for, for myself, which I'll go into more detail later on. Now, I, I'm curious in this aspect, and it, it may be sort of relative to my own self. You know, I am from Rhode Island, a small community called South Kingston, Rhode Island, and it's not a place like a New York City, a LA, or now in Austin, Texas, where a certain, right. a certain demographic live, where you're going to be seeing celebrity people or famous people walking through town and talking to them. I've had people who've shared those stories. And for yourself, growing up in Washington State, all the way up in the Pacific Northwest, how does someone like yourself find the interest in wanting to be a film work of fil- people working in film even though i know early on you wanted to be a forest ranger yeah i mean i i think i never considered it a possibility because of the things you just mentioned coming from a small town being so far away from the movie business uh i i went with the flow of what a lot of my contemporaries were going with at the time when they were coming out of high school they were uh, you know, either going to the University of Washington and becoming lawyers and whatever, or they were going across the state to Washington State University and becoming forestry majors or, you know, uh, botanists uh, or even uh, it, it, there was a great vet school there. Or they were just staying. They didn't go to college at all. They just uh, they went to work for their fathers and or mothers and, and they stayed in the hometown. So, I mean, I didn't consider uh, the movie business as something that was for me initially. Um, but having said that, from a very early age, I loved writing. I loved storytelling. I loved creative writing. I mean, in, in middle school and high school, most of my friends hated creative writing. You know, and I loved it. I just, yeah. I just absolutely loved it. So I knew there was something there that I enjoyed, but I didn't really pinpoint it as a way to a career, or I did. I never really took it that seriously. Um, but there was a moment my first year at Washington State University, chasing a, a forestry or a forest ranger uh, career, 
where I realized that that isn't, wasn't really what I wanted to do. Yeah. And uh, so when I was brutally honest with myself uh, about what I wanted to do, I was kind of shocked at the answer, which was, I want to you know, go, go down. I want to make movies. I want to be in the movie business. I want to tell stories. I want to either direct movies or write them. Or I had no clue. Uh, so I went to a counselor, you know, and said, I need to transfer somewhere where, you know, that it's a, that, that has a decent film school. I mean, she, and so she was like, okay, well, she looked it up and said, well, there's three choices, basically, uh, USC, UCLA, or NYU on the East Coast. And I, I knew I didn't want to go on the East Coast. I was a, I was a Westerner at heart. And I was, uh, I, the West is the best. It's Jim Morrison. So for me. Um, so I, I just flipped a coin and I applied to USC and I got accepted and I, my, my application landed on the desk at the perfect time because in those days, uh, USC was really looking to expand their student body in terms of film beyond, you know, like sons and daughters of the movie executives. You know, they were really wanting to regionally reach out and bring different voices in from around the country to their film school. And I was just one of those applicants that they thought, oh, this is okay, let's bring this guy in. And so, yeah, I got, I got accepted into USC film school. I went down there and uh, it was awesome because suddenly this little niche that I had loved and was passionate about for since I was nine years old, became my world, became my world. I got to talk film 24 seven with people that understood and loved it too. And, you know, like, and so it was really just a, a very cool time. Uh, and while there in my first year, there were, uh, I had to take an elective and there was a screenwriting class that was, you know, a part of that. And I thought, well, I should, I'm going to take that because I like writing, I like telling stories. And so that's really where it all came together. Because in that class, but, you know, if you're lucky in the course of your schooling, you have somebody take an interest in you yeah. and, and, and mentor you or just, you know, encourage you. And I had that in a professor in that class who took me aside and said, look, you really show an aptitude for this. And, if, you know, you really want to direct movies, which I did. He said the quickest way to get into the director's chair is to be able to write good screenplays. And so I took him at his word, you know, and I, uh, <laughs> I think that's too much at his word in his, <laughs> for him, it's because I dropped out shortly thereafter of USC because it was a very expensive school and I knew uh, people, I knew guys and, you know, with bachelor degrees and some even with MFAs and film that were tending bar, you know, like they were, you know, after all that money they spent, they had a nice reel of film under their arm, but they were just, you know, they were, and I thought, well, fuck it, I can, you know, I can work, you know, I don't, I don't want to tend a bar, but I can work at, a, you know, some sort of low life job while, and write scripts and try to, you know, get in that way. And that's what I ended up doing. Well, I'm curious in that aspect, you know, and you've said this in other interviews you've done, a lot of times parents have an idea of what they want their kids to do, what they think their kids would be good, without any input on their own kids. And seeing as though your parents, although like probably some of that generation had no like no idea or concept of the film industry, were supportive of you. And then you had that professor 
even with dropping out of the USC, USC film school, how much of those two instances of your parents believing you and the professor believing you help you just full steam ahead in terms of not stopping with, with your dream of writing and producing films? Well, it certainly, it certainly made it easier uh, on some level for me to uh, pursue. But, you know, you have to understand, I mean, in, at that time in my life, I was quite naive, too. I mean, I just thought, oh, somebody's got to do this. I'm going to do it, you know, kind of that, you know. But it was great to have my parents in that moment when I told them that's what I wanted to do, not try to talk me out of it because they were just concerned and they were fearful of what that, you know, they just didn't know anything. Uh, so I was very lucky in that you're right. I mean, a lot of well-meaning parents can talk their children out of their dreams, uh, you know, uh, because they just don't know or they, they fear or they're, you know, they, they, they're concerned about this, that. And, and you know, in my case, they, a lot of parents would say, well, that's great that you have it. Why don't you finish that degree, though, that you're, that, you know, and then when you've done with that, if you still feel the same way, yes, we'll support, you know, like, so there's a lot of that. that so uh, I was very fortunate that my parents said, hey, whatever it takes, we'll support you. I mean, we'll support your, you know, efforts. We, we don't know anything about it, <laughs> nothing about it. Crazy kind of sounding to us, but we trust you and away you go. You know, so that was great. And then to have uh, my uh, my screenwriting professor take me aside and, and just give me a little boost of like, hey, you should do this because you're good at it really was helpful to me. So well, I, want, I want to talk about that. I mean, nowadays with social media, it, you can get noticed very quickly with, you know, YouTube putting something out there and it blows up and you can get all this attention from people. Whereas when, when you were growing up and or any other generation, there was, of course, no YouTube, no TikTok, none of that stuff. So you really have to pay your dues, I'm sure, in the industry of eventually getting to a spot where you can sort of be fine. Early in your career, I know you mentioned you took a job, a low-level job where you could write at the same time for, for scripts and stuff. Was there a moment, even maybe when you were working for Paramount or then eventually Disney, where you were writing and it tested you in terms of if this is really what you want to do or were you somebody that was full into everything? Well, again, I would just say that I was naive, you know, and I just thought, I'm going to do this and somebody's got to do this. In a year, a movie's going to come out and, and somebody's going to have written it. Why not me? So I didn't know any better about how hard it is and all those things. Uh, I just assumed uh, that I was going to make it in a weird way. I don't, I, I'm not trying to be, you know, arrogant or about it or anything i just but i just in my body and my i just thought this is what i'm supposed to do and i'm going to do it no matter how long it takes and that's you know that was the attitude i always had and there were you know there were you know i got some jobs and then there were setbacks after i wrote my second script at paramount i was on unemployment for a year so i think the, the you know what a lot of people who want to get into the movie business especially as screenwriters assume is that that they just focus so much on, I got to get that, you know, that I got to get hired. I got to get, you know, my script read and I got to get that job. And, and that's great. And you do have to do those things, but you know, most careers in Hollywood in, in terms of screenwriting are careers that are just filled with ups and downs and ups and downs. And if you're not ready and you don't understand that that is probably going to be 
how, how your career goes unless you're the you know one half of one percent that just you know uh then it's tough for a lot of people i think they get to a place and they go wow this is not what i signed up for you know kind of they, you know a lot of people the majority of people need some sort of security in their life and you know screenwriting as a career is not necessarily uh, uh built on security sure. um you know we're we're in the midst of a strike right now yeah. five months now just for that reason, because a lot of new writers are, are getting to a point where they thought, wait a minute, I'm working on this hit show. I'm writing on this hit show. And where's all the things that I thought would be available to me? Like, I'm going to make some decent money. I'm going to be able to buy a house, raise a family. None of that stuff is available. In fact, some people on these hit shows, they would, you know, you've heard these stories, had to even take second jobs just yeah. to make their, you know, their rent. And so that is why this strike is going on right now, because when I broke in the 80s, you know, um, it was certainly a different model. There was, uh, you know, the studios, the six or seven studios, I can't remember how many there were, they were the ones that developed all of the movies that made it to the screen. And they would release 20 movies a year, and they would be developing 150 more at any given time. So you multiply that times seven, and there was a, you know, it was a little clique of screenwriters back in those days. I don't want to say little, but certainly over the last 20 years, many, many more influx of WGA members. You know, we've seen an increase of people gravitating towards writing. But in those days, you know, there was plenty of work to be found. There was plenty of work out there, whether you were out you were pitching on a, on a project or you were, uh, you know, going to do a rewrite of a project or you were going to do a polish of a project or you were, you know, in my case, at, you know, when Disney came knocking and, and uh, I ended up writing The Hunchback of Notre Dame for them, uh, subsequently they offered me, you know, a, a multi-year deal. Uh, those kinds of things are not available to most writers these days. And so... And there's a lot of good writers out there too, and uh, and so it's a it's really something that the the companies have to figure out a way to uh, you know uh, uh, you know they can't be making billions off of you know screenwriters yeah. who can't even make their rent. Yeah. So uh, yeah, times have have definitely changed uh, since I broke in, and so I my point is I made decent money and I. I wrote, directed a movie uh, during that time, and uh, I wrote, uh, I got another deal at, uh, I think it was Sony, uh, blind script deals, which are just not given out much anymore. Blind, by blind script deals, meaning, hey, we're just going to, you know, put you on a retainer like a lawyer. We're going to pay you a lot of money, and then you're, you're going to figure out what, we're going to all figure out together what you write for us. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's definitely uh, I feel for a lot of young writers right now coming up uh, and looking around at the landscape and going, what the fuck? I mean, I can't even pay my rent when I'm writing on a hit show. I mean, that's crazy. I want to talk about one a film of yours that came out 35 years ago this year, being Gorillas in the Mist, a film that, looking with today's lens in the landscape of animals and 
the the population of, of the the African wildlife uh, nowadays and how it's decreasing for the most part. Back then, though, being part of that film, how important was that to your career? Looking back at all these years later, well, that was a definite turning point. That was a huge turning point, and uh, you know, it was it was also I you know I don't know whether you know I don't know if you want to say fate or destiny, but a lot of the projects that I've been lucky enough to work on over the course of my career, I feel like have, have been uh, either drawn to me or I've been drawn to them because of where I grew up, how I grew up, what I loved growing up, the passion I, I had for camping and backpacking and fishing and hunting and all these things that, you know, that I did as a, as a sort of like I was raised in a culture of the outdoors, of wilderness, and appreciating wildlife and things like that. Um, so when Gorillas in the Mist came along, it was like smack dab right in the, you know, like right in my wheelhouse, like that project. I just, and I, I've always successfully over the course of my career, in, in many instances, uh, written strong female characters. I've had great success writing strong female characters. And I attribute that because I had strong female characters in my life. I had my grandmother who was, you know, pioneer stock and just, you know, you know, great, you know, took care of a family of six and raised the, you know, worked in the gardens and did all her. My grandfather was a logger, so he was gone half the time. She was a strong woman and, uh, uh, and my mother, uh, you know, ultimately was a strong woman as well, uh, strong in many ways of, of, of keeping the family going. My dad was uh, gone, like my like my grandmother's husband was gone. My mother's husband, my dad, was gone at a pivotal time. Uh, he flew for the Air Force, and he, uh, you know, got called to active duty in Vietnam. So he was he was gone for. Many, you know, a couple of years, he would only come home once a month for just a few days, you know, and then my mother had, was raising five kids. So, so I think the, the that sort of that, uh, I don't know, my attitude towards women has always been not sort of the frail, you know, kind of, you know, you know like I, you know, because I was not surrounded by women like that. I was surrounded by women who said, okay, we got shit to do. Let's get it done. Come on. Boom, boom, boom. You know, like, 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 you know, army generals in yeah. some ways. Yeah. That didn't mean that they weren't nurturing and loving, but there was, boy, you know, when you got an order, you jumped, you know, whether it was your grandmother or your mother. And, uh, but they also had a very uh, strong sense of right and wrong and uh, all those things sort of informed. So when Gorillas in the Mist came along and, you know, I had, I'd been aware of Diane Fossey because I was a, you know, it's a big fan of Richard Leakey and Leakey uh, uh, had, you know, taken, you know, of course, uh, oh, um, the, the woman that studied chimpanzees at Gombe, what, what, Jane Goodall. So Jane Goodall, Diane was part of that trifecta, Jane Goodall, Diane, Virate Galdicus down in Borneo, I think, studying orangutan. So he had sort of like found these women who were tough and strong and independent to go into the jungles or wherever to study these uh, great apes. Uh, 
And I just thought, oh, I know that character. I know her. And I know, you know, like, I know how, you know, like, I just had an instinct. Plus, I also knew that I loved wildlife and that I could relate to her journey and her ultimate commitment to stop poaching of these wonderful animals. So uh, when I got asked to do that, I was, that was just, that was, I wrote that script in two and a half weeks. I just knew it. I knew it so well. I had a, you know, I had a a couple of uh, uh, documentaries that I used as source material. I had an an article that had just been written in Life magazine about Diane. She had just been murdered like six months before, Uh, you know, so, uh, and that's why nobody tried telling her story before then, because ironically, the, her murder was the end of, of the movie, really. I mean, you know, suddenly there was a movie there, you know, yeah. in a weird way. Uh, so, yeah, no, I wrote that in two and a half weeks and uh, the producers turned it into Warner Brothers where they had a deal. Warner Brothers loved it, committed to make it. And, uh, yeah, anyway, it was a it was a it was a great time for me in terms of then the you know, they went off and made the movie. I got nominated for an Academy Award along with Anna Hamilton Phelan, who had written a draft, uh, several drafts for Universal, who actually had the rights to Diane's book. So those two companies merged to make one movie. Um, and uh, from then on, um, you know, you get an Academy Award nomination. And yeah. Suddenly you're, suddenly you're in a room with people who can say yes to the movie like like green light or yes and give you the job right there in the room not in sort of junior executive yeah. land where you know they may love it but they got to send it upstairs and you got to go up the ladder pitch pitch and all that stuff so that was a that was a huge turning point for me in my career yeah well i want to ask you about the writing process but you kind of mentioned that a lot of the other you know some of the disney films of course hunchback and atlantis you know, and of course, Tarzan, the stories of that have been told before, whether it's from a book or from a television series or whatever the case may be. Whereas this one, as you said, there wasn't really a story told about her. There was an article written about her scenario. So for you, in terms of obviously you want to make it as realistic as possible, but also have some creative elements, I'm sure, in the film to tell a story. What was your process diving between both things of telling the true story, but also making it a movie where people could be entertained? Well, it really starts with research. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to tell a story about somebody who is a real life character, uh, before you start inventing a bunch of stuff, a bunch of scenes that are entertaining, you really have to do your research because anything you invent for whatever reason um, has to feel organic to the character, it has to feel organic to what happened. Um, a lot of times, you know, in the course of making a film or writing a film, you know, the true events are spread out and you have to squash timelines or you have to, there's six characters that were meaningful that you have to just create one character to be symbolic of all yeah. those other six that, so there's all sorts of decisions that have to be made. Um, but we, you know, like, I think we had the rights to Bob Campbell, who was the National Geographic photographer on the mountain with Diane. The Universal writer, uh, 
and Universal did not have his rights. So we were able, I was able to construct a script that, you know, that, that was very true to sort of everything I had read up to that point. And, you know, unfortunately, I mean, you know, like there is speculation and there maybe had been an affair between Diane and, and Bob Campbell, who was married on the mountain, but I didn't put that in the script. I, I made them working partners, uh, trying to do the right thing by these gorillas and et cetera, et cetera. When the scripts were, when the projects merged to become one, Universal decided that, 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 and the director also, who I met with, that we, you know, you know, we, we can't show these two people not fucking on the mountain. <laughs> okay, Michael. Uh, anyway, so that's fine. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it's, you have to always be telling a story that you hope people are interested in and are hooked by and want to see what's going to happen. I think, you know, the, the, the the ace in the hole on gorillas is we had, were the gorillas themselves sure. they were extremely i mean i went to rwanda and i saw them and i sat with them and i looked in their eyes and and there is something so human i mean we share so much dna with that species yeah. and so i think that that really became something that you know that and and diane's initial wonder and discovery and then kind of crossing the line of, of, of studying to becoming a little too sort of like intimate with them and allowing them to you know like touching it i mean any scientist will tell you that she did absolutely the wrong thing you know like in terms of like letting herself get emotionally attached to them yeah. you know uh but how could you not and so that's i felt like that was a very empathetic thing about Diane's character was that as much as and she was in, in her in all fairness to her she was not a trained scientist who could you know just keep her emotions in check and just look at them as subjects and and record data and not be you know not touch them and you know she was a woman who had previously you know worked with uh, I think autistic children I, I could be wrong but so she had a great deal of empathy, you know, already as a character. And, and so I, when I read, kept reading about her, I mean, she started to look at some of these gorillas, uh, especially the young ones as, as her, as her children or as children that she became close to and, and, and watched grow up at, in her time on the mountain, which is why she became so strident about, and almost, you know, like, insane about protecting yeah. them you know so and i understood that character you know whether you agreed with her methodology or not i, I totally understood how she could get to that place after after that of course you had the last of dogman that you were that, that that you wrote but then after that film or maybe even during near the end of that because of course it's not like you just write a screen play and then oh that's going to go into production and then that's that doesn't take that short amount of time, there's years that go into it, of, of course, eventually you would work with Disney for 10 years and you joined them at a period when, although since the beginnings in Snow White, they've been known for their animated films, even when it was by hand, on how gold standard it was in terms of production and the story. When you were getting ready to be part of Hunchback, 
did that ever hold weight in terms of your potential writing that movie or was that something that just was in the background that you didn't really pay attention to well you know it's interesting because initially i did not uh i mean just to understand a part of the timeline um the, the very first jobs i got were a couple of scripts i wrote at paramount um and i you know made some uh, friends executives there and uh and i i knew jeffrey katzenberg and I, a couple other executives and during from the time i finished those scripts to getting busy you know trying to get last the dogman made and other projects those guys including michael eisner shifted to disney and jeffrey katzenberg took over the animation division and so his idea was to develop uh screenplays for the stories that they would make into animated movies now that had not been done and traditionally most of the animated movies were developed in-house by story artists animators etc and yeah ultimately there was writing done of course but uh jeffrey wanted to bring kind of a live action sensibility to the development of the animated movies that you know in his division so he was reaching out to writers he knew that he had worked with that he he liked and uh, I just happened to be one of them. And initially, though, I kept saying no because uh, not not no because I didn't want to write for Disney. But there was a certain part of of, of Disney that you know uh, the, the true renaissance of Disney animation was just getting started, and I think Little Mermaid had just been yeah. released. And I still really considered those movies for kids. And, and it wasn't that I didn't want to write for Disney. It's just that I, I had this vision of myself as being a, a more serious sure. writer who wanted to write adult, you know, movies and, you know, whatever. So, and I'll, I was also at the time trying to get Last of the Dogman financed and off the ground and et cetera. So... I had a lot of stuff on my plate when he, through his uh, executives, kept reaching out to me saying, why don't you come in? Why don't you come in and see what we have? And I kept saying no. And I, I went to lunch with one executive at one point uh, who said, uh, hey, we have this movie we're doing. It's going to be our first computer-generated movie. Uh, we just bought this company called Pixar in Marin County. And... Uh, and I said, well, what's the what's the story? I mean, that's always the most important thing to me. And, and she said, uh, it's a story about a, a boy and his talking toys. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, man. Uh, so that was an easy pass for me. Uh, uh, in addition to the fact that, you know, they said, if you're interested and it works out, you'd have to move to Marin County for two years. You know? And I just like, I, you know, and I was trying to get a movie off the ground I wanted to direct. So that was an easy pass. Of course, hindsight is 2020. Yeah. Uh, but eventually I got my movie financed, but I had this window where uh, the star, Tom Berenger, had to do two other movies before he could do mine. So, and like all writers, blue collar writers, screenwriters in Hollywood, I had to pay my bills. I had to, I had to. So right around that time, Disney reached out again and said, why don't you come in and look, look at, see what we're working on, you know, just come on. And I said, okay, I need money. I have this eight month window. So I went in and uh, that meeting turned into the hunchback. Of yeah. so, 
Well, with that film, though, I mean, that there's a book, Victor Hugo's book of The Hunchback of Notre Dame has, I'm sure, a lot of detail in it, but also story from, from beginning to end. With the magnitude that that book holds and the history of, of it and the story, how what made that exciting to want to take that book and turn it into a film? What, is that something you were interested in as a child, or is it just something that was a challenge to you that you were willing to take on? Well, I think a little bit of both because, you know, the truth is I was a monster nerd in yeah. the 60s growing up. I, I, you know, collected a magazine called Famous Monsters of Filmland. I loved horror movies, monster movies, any kind of, you know, spooky, scary movies I just was fixated on. And so I was keenly aware of the story of Quasimodo because in those days, in the 60s, he was sort of lumped in with that great canon of universal horror monsters, Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman, Hunchback. Even though Quasimodo was human, he was still sort of like that rogues gallery of monsters from Universal. And so I, you know, I, I was well aware of that story. Um, so when in that meeting, when they, you know, I went through a lot of material that they were trying to develop and none of it was resonating with me. Uh, then they said, toward the end of the meeting, we're trying to figure out if there's a Disney animated movie in this, and this turned out to be Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame. I didn't even hesitate. I said, I'll do that. I'll do that. I want to do that. And it was like a, just a total, like, again, you know, just like Gorillas was right in my wheelhouse. Hunchback was just a, a, a total, you know, like a, the arrow to the bullseye of what, you know, my childhood. And I thought, no, I don't know if I can do this or what, what it means, but I have to say yes. And so I did. And, and then, it, you know, it was a, it was a great, great, uh, 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 I'm just, you know, it was a great experience. It was probably the most creative fun I've had to that point as a screenwriter uh, and would continue. I mean, it would continue after Hunchback into Tarzan, which again, spoke directly to my childhood. Sure. I grew up on Johnny Weissel and movies. So, I mean, I just, you know, so here I was being handed by Disney opportunities to really just, you know, express creatively everything I was about, you know, and that included Atlantis, which yeah. was, I loved adventure films and, you know, Kurt, Gary, Don and I, the, the brain trust behind uh, Hunchback, got together and they had amassed enough cachet at the studio by then uh, to do pretty much whatever they wanted. And we all decided we wanted to do an adventure movie. Uh, we wanted to do something with no songs, uh, something different. And uh, we got to, you know, I got to cook up the initial story and, and we just, we had a great time on that film. And then again, Brother Bear was something I was asked to do when I grew up in Pacific Northwest. I'm a, I'm a huge student of native culture. So every one of those Disney movies meant something to me. Sure. Far deep, far deeper than just, here's a job, you want to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. Well, I wanted to speak about Tarzan. I, at first, I want to ask, though, how does it feel to be one of the main people to help Phil Collins revitalize his career in the early in the 90s <laughs> with, with, with that with, with what came from that? But also with that film, and I'll probably revisit this in a little bit, both films, whether it be Hunchback, Atlantis, Tarzan, both very detailed in both its surrounding what the 
film looks like in terms of the design of it, but also the the, the story it, it itself. With those films, you also were collaborating on. You mentioned Kirk and uh, several others from that movie from Hunchback that were with Atlantis, but also there were some from Tarzan they worked on with the previous film as well. When you're able to collaborate with others from previous movies on a, a following one, does that make the process for creating this story in this film easier or, or, or different? Well, I mean, I think it gives a level of comfort to me as the writer to know that no matter what's you know, like I knew early on when I went to work at Disney that I was going to have to bring my A game constantly, always, because I was surrounded by some of the most talented artists, designers, directors, this and that. Disney amassed A plus talent. And yeah. that's, you know, so I knew initially I was intimidated, but then as I got sort of comfortable and uh, I knew that no matter every movie I started for them, I, the, every, there were 300 people working on that movie that were going to have my back, basically, you know, uh, because I didn't have to worry about doing their jobs and they didn't have to worry about me doing my job. They trusted that I would, you know, deliver a story that would inspire them to bring their expertise and their talent to the, to the whole endeavor. So it was a give and take and it was just so much fun to be in rooms with artists you know, and story artists and storyboard artists and, uh, you know, and, and riffing on ideas and, and as opposed to being in, you know, kind of a meeting with suits at a studio, giving you notes on your script, which didn't make any sense half the time. So it, that's why I kept saying yes. And in addition to the material was that I just had such a great time doing those movies, you know, sure. working those movies. Well, so, I, want to, I want to um mention that you talked about getting notes from suits, but then also sitting with these really creative people and riffing off of uh, ideas. And a lot of Disney's films up until Atlantis had a lot of song and dance in it. And that was a, 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 a the root of a lot of the films, particularly you saw with Hunchback, they're singing there, but Atlantis, there was not. When you're writing these, we're writing those films. How much did you imagine those elements in it, or were you something that just had a blit, blank space and just writing until you were done and thought it made sense? Well, you know, I had the same question early on in Hunchback. I knew it was going to be a musical, and I was like, guys, do I have to write songs? Because I suck at that, probably. It's like, no, nah, they won't. Don't worry about that, Tab. You write the stories. You write the story you want to write. And we will, you know, our, our, you know, Steve Schwartz and Alan Menken will, you know, go through and find places for songs in, in, in your script. And they will read it, be inspired and say, this is a song. And that exactly happened. One day I was called in and my script had been put up on one big wall in this meeting room. And Alan Menken and Steve Schwartz went through it, reading the script, and then they would stop I think Alan had a pointer, he'd point song, and then Stephen would come up with a big, you know, Sharpie, and he'd start Xing out pages of my script. And I was like, holy fuck, I, I worked so hard on that dialogue. And at one point, I, you know, Alan turned around, he saw me, and he goes, Tab, Tab, no, don't worry, don't worry. This is, you're going to love it. These, your words are what inspires these songs, and we're going to, you know, 
yeah. and willing, you know, like all this stuff. And then, you know, I, you know, and, but ultimately when I saw the film, oh my God, I just was like, of course, this is way better than anything I could have imagined, you know, and it, and they told the story, they continued the story through the, through the songs. And so, uh, yeah, no, it was a, it was a great process. And one that once I got used to, I mean, I, you know, but you're right. I mean, and Tarzan had songs as well. Um, and, you know, I didn't work with Phil on Tarzan and I didn't, uh, but I, I had a, I met him because we were invited to an awards ceremony. I think one of those ones in LA where you're told you've already won. So show up and collect your prize. And so Phil and I were sitting at the same table and he had just finished Brother Bear. And so we had a nice chat. He was very, very complimentary about this, both the scripts for Tarzan and Brother Bear that inspired his songs. And that's what, you know, any artist who's coming in to write songs for a story, they're hoping to be inspired by what's on the page already, you know. So. Speaking of that element, and I mentioned Atlantis had none of that aspect, and there was a, qu a quote that you said in a previous interview where the message was less songs and more explosions. With a film like Atlantis, where you're eliminating that whole aspect of, of the song and dance number, and you're just able to be completely creative and tell the story, for you, growing up with all the films that you watched, the process it took you to get to where you were, to have that opportunity to just have this massive play go and write a story your own way, how freeing was that? Oh, it was awesome, dude. Are you kidding me? It was like, I was like a kid in a candy store. We all were, Kirk, Gary, Don. Um, you know, it's, you have to understand that the movies I wrote during that era for Disney, Disney was going through something of a metamorphosis and they were, they were really trying to be open to different uh, ideas, different material. Um, I think they were had grown a little tired of the fairy tale musical, yeah. and so they were just more open to different ideas, which included Hunchback, which uh, you know Tarzan, um, and uh, certainly Atlantis. Um, so I was very fortunate, you know, that I was in the right place at the right time to write those four movies or write on those because many people contributed to the writing of those movies, trust me. But I was very fortunate that I was, you know, that and I look back and I'm very proud of those four movies because I don't think in the hey, in the case of Hunchback, I don't think Disney would make that movie today. That was a of a time and a place when they were really trying to stretch uh, creatively. And uh, you know, I've said this before. Or, you know, we got away with murder on Hunchback. I mean, there's so many, I mean, you know, I get a kick out of fans who watched that movie as a kid and, you know, laughed at the gargoyles and, you know, were inspired by Esmeralda and this and that. And then they watch it again as an adult and they text me and like, what the fuck, Tab? What did you, what were you doing in that scene with us? Like, hey, you know what? It's, uh, so, I mean, we had, yeah. There were things when I wrote on that movie that I thought in a million years this was ever going to make it in the movie, and, and it did. Yeah. And that was, I think, that is a, a, exactly a testament to where Disney was at in terms of like trying to figure out where they were going to go and how they were going to go and what their 
future and in, in, in storytelling is going to look like. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was um, it was uh, Atlantis was just uh, a joy from the beginning to end. You know, well, similar to Hunchback and Tarzan, uh, I can't think of the word for a second. Atlantis set at a certain period in time, a period of peace in the early 1900s when technology was starting to boom yet again. As a writer, how important is that to find the right time period for the movie instead of just writing it in the current 21st century? Well, it's very important. And, uh, you know, like, for instance, uh, Hunchback had, you know, I didn't have to do any world building in Hunchback. I mean, the time period, the Notre Dame, Paris, the catacombs, so many things were already there and available that I didn't have to create, uh, which was great because I could, you know, spend a lot of time on character, uh, you know, defining characters and and massaging the story in a way that could be, you know, uh, would work as a Disney animated feature. Uh, With, you know, with Atlantis, we were starting from scratch, zero. Uh, but we weren't really because, uh, you know, Atlantis represents a lot of movies that we watched as kids that we loved. It, 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 we, you know, there's a lot of tropes that we early on stole, uh, not stole, but, you know, were inspired by it. Let me put it that way. Uh, but, you know, it, ultimately we had to create a world. We had to create the world. And so everything, everything in a Disney animated movie, everything in every frame is intentional. I mean, there is no sort of like, oh, you know, the background people, whatever. No, everything, every color, every whatever anybody's wearing and the color there, everything is intentional. So everything in the creation of Atlantis was intentional, including the time period. For that reason, we wanted to tell a story that, you know, was, you know, on the, that had a the nostalgic sort of old world flavor, but was on the verge of that, you know, of the time period on the verge of technology, mainly because Kirk and Gary wanted to create all these cool vehicles that they could yeah. take under the earth and you know, plow through shit and everything. So there was a, this whole desire in terms of production design to create, you know, these vehicles that they would take under the earth. And I think the time period also worked because it, uh, you know, like a lot of people feel like the world has already been explored. There's nothing new out there. There's nothing to learn. And, and you know, by setting it in 1914, we set it in an era where there were still possibilities of yeah. lost civilizations, you know, uh, and, and you know, the whole character of Milo, I mean, he was uh, originally, he was going to be a Viking, so his name was Milo Erickson, and, and you know, he was a descendant of Leif Erickson, <laughs> and then he was going to be a descendant of Blackbeard the pirate, so he was Milo something or other, I can't even remember. But we finally just decided to make him uh, a linguist who just had this, you know, had discovered and was just trying to find the Shepherd's Journal uh, to, you know, sort of unlock uh, 
the mystery of whatever happened to Atlantis, et cetera, et cetera. So, and then uh, I thought, well, what should we call it? Well, let's just call it Milo Thatch because Thatch sounded like a cool the bad guy would call him occasionally. <laughs> and, and so we settled on that. Uh, but yeah, no, it was great because I, and, and by then the directors and the producer trusted me. And so um, I initially, I mean, we, we had, we had determined that we wanted to tell a story about explorers going into the earth and finding what we didn't even know. We just knew that we we could, you know, say, okay, this is written in stone, a story about explorers going into the earth. Well, I mean, I mean, that's so general. I mean, it, it's been done before journey to the center of the earth and, you know, other, you know, like you could even say the, the horror movie descent from a few years ago is women going and, you know, spelunking into the earth and of course they have a whole different set of problems but uh so that wasn't you know there was nothing fresh and new about that what became fresh and new about it is all the things that we added to that all of the the, from the time period from the cast of uh explorers the characters i came up with which by the way you know, we you can look back at that movie now and, and say, in some ways, wow, they were really ahead of their time. They had a, yeah. you know, the, the explorers were diverse. There was well, we had nobody telling us we had to be diverse. Yeah. You know, yeah. like like today, yeah. we just did it. We just did it because we just thought, hey, you know, we want an international group of explorers, and we just did it. I so I came up with Vinny, I came up with Audrey, I came up with, you know, and I I didn't even think twice about it. You know, Audrey's Latina. Okay, uh, Benny is an Italian demolitions expert. Okay, we Doctor Sweet. You know, like we just I didn't nobody even question it. We just like, oh, this is cool. These are great characters. Let's keep going. You know, so um, so that was cool. And even Princess Kita being a princess of color was not something we even thought of like oh we're breaking ground here yes let's do it we never thought of it that way we just thought of you know atlanteans probably have uh, we're people of we're either brown or black you know we're people of some color so that would just made sense that the that kita would you know be that and and kita was never meant to be a princess in any way even though she is, and I refer to her as the Princess of Atlantis in early drafts of the of the uh, treatment. Because the more we got into it, I mean, she was a warrior princess, you know. Yeah. And in fact, the first scene that I wrote of her meeting with Milo was uh, he is kind of wandered away from the group, yeah. and he's suddenly under attack by this big fucking caterpillar creature, you know, that's <laughs> kind of right out of First Men in the Moon, if you ever saw that movie. And it's just about to chomp him with these mandibles. And he's like, ah, and then it drops dead right in front of him. And he's like, and then he looks up and there's Kita standing on top of this dead thing with a spear in it. She takes it out and she looks down at him and he's like, you know, like that was how they were supposed to meet. Like she was a hunter, a warrior, you know? So again, you know, very tough, but vulnerable woman, you know? So that's how we wanted to always portray her. So anyway, so we, yeah, it evolved, it evolved, it evolved, it always evolves and always, you know, the writing process of getting to a place where everybody feels good about the story can take anywhere from six months to a year. Wow.
Yeah. So I think I wrote on Hunchback for probably a year. And that and it's interesting because unlike live action movies, which where the screenplay is king. Screenplay. Everything comes from the screenplay, the director, the actors, and this or that. You don't even write the script until long. The, 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 the outline or the treatment is king in animation, right? right? So that's where you figure, I mean, you know, I turned in a 25-page treatment to Hunchback after working on it for three months. And Jeffrey Katzenberg called me and says, I love this. I'm greenlighting it off the treatment. You know, and we're and we're going. I mean, and and, and I was like, wow, that's awesome. So, a lot of work can get started before you even write fade in exterior Notre Dame Cathedral day. I mean, you know, that comes way down the line, which was a big change for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the other part of that that was cool was that I got to exercise a muscle I really got to exercise as a screenwriter, which is right writing prose, which is what I, my first love was back in middle school and high school. The last movie I want to mention to you before we sort of wrap up here is a movie, another movie that's celebrating an anniversary, which is Brother Bear, which I remember seeing 20 years ago in the theater. Bear, I, I don't remember the whole movie because I was only three years old, but I remember sitting in the IMAX theater with f- family, friends, and watching it. And I remember, of course, the McDonald's toys and so forth. Another film similar to Gorillas in the Mist, where it has a lot of importance in terms of of course native americans or not native americans but uh, the inuit Indi- indigenous, indigenous culture, culture yes. and believing in another uh universe and that sort of thing and a higher power with that film being the tail end of your time with disney what was that experience like for you writing it especially with stuff that had so much importance to certain cultures in the in the world well, it was again just you know as I was as I was off Atlantis, you know, I think Tom Schumacher called me and said, "Look, we got a uh, animator who's going to make his directing debut, and he has a story about he wants to tell about a man turning into a bear and learning a great lesson in life." And and that's all he had to say because I you know I love bears. I mean you know so. I that that director uh, was Aaron Blaze, wonderful guy. And uh, the caveat, though, was that they were going to make the film in Orlando at, at their facility in Orlando, which meant that I had to make a lot of cross country <laughs> plane flights uh, back in the day. And I was, uh, you know, I was raised, helping raise, uh, you know, five kids by that point. Um, so that was a a bit of a, uh, it was, it just made things a little bit more difficult, but the experience itself was absolutely awesome. Aaron is a, he's a, a, a very talented wildlife illustrator, painter, and he had done uh, character work and Mulan and other, you know, I can't remember his, you'd have to look his credits up, but he was very, just really talented. But beyond that, when he and I met, I mean, within five minutes, we just knew we were like brothers, yeah. you know, like it, because he just loved wildlife. He loved wilderness. He loved native culture, all the things that I loved. So much of those early meetings were us sitting around the campfire at his house, you know, on, on uh, can't remember the name of the lake in, in outside of Orlando and just shooting the shit, 
just talking about stuff we love and and then talking and then talking about the story i want to you know like he hadn't really worked out too much so i was you know called in to help him shape the movie and, and find the story and and it became a story about brothers. It became, a, you know, obviously. Uh, but there was, a, it was an exciting time. And I worked on that probably, I don't know, close to a year, I guess, back and forth. And then he came out to Burbank and we had the pitch to Roy Disney. And, uh, and it, you know, like, but it was, it was great. I remember he, I remember he made that, the hand imprint with the bear, you know, in the, the, the bear with the hand imprint. He drew that, you know, in a meeting one day and he held it up and I said, that is fucking awesome, dude. And, you know, that was early on in the process and that illustration survived all the way through. And, you know, a lot of things don't survive initially. They change or whatever. So, uh, no, we, I, we, I had a great time working with Aaron and helping to find the story and, you know, just uh, spending time in, in Orlando in meetings and just really talking through things. It's, it's always that. And then writing a treat, there's outline after outline and treatment after treatment and all that, the usual stuff, Sure. you know. Last time we spoke, I mentioned the influence, the some of the major films you were a part of in my life, but of course, there's others as well. And, you know, I remember, of course, going to theaters 20 years ago, seeing Brother Bear, Atlantis, whatever, whatever state of consciousness I'm in, Atlantis is always near the top of, of viewing stuff. Awesome. I'm curious for you, looking going back at that time, once you finished those projects all those years ago, compared to now, how you looked at it. How I look at those projects? Yeah. Well, I look at those projects as a huge chunk of my career. In 12 years, you know, I was working on those four films. And they were some of the most gratifying, creatively inspiring, most fun one could have as a screenwriter. Yeah. Uh, that is how I look at those. They, they, All those movies have a very special meaning to me. Uh, and they, they came at a time in my career when I was, you know, I was, you know, I, I just wanted to be a good screenwriter and I wanted to tell great stories. And suddenly, you know, almost like divine intervention, uh, I was offered Hunchback, which we talked about. I was so, uh, you know, I knew that story at nine years old because I was a monster nerd, you know, growing up in the 60s. So every one of those films has a special place in my heart. Absolutely. And it was a great 12 years working with some of the most talented people sure. in the animation, in the world of animation in those days. And it just was a joy, a, a purely, a, purely joy. It was a lot of fun. Even though back then Atlantis might not have done uh, financially as well as maybe others that you're part of, but even 20 years later, I mean, it's still beloved. It's still held in a, a limelight, which is unbelievable in the sense, because in the early nineties, I mean, you had, Little Mermaid, you had um, Beauty and the Beast films who are such historically talented films, then you just continue to build. So I'm sure even though you're the story guy creating this um, emotional aspect, it's still a challenging thing. I was I, I was thinking the last few weeks of sort of when I end up wanting to wrap this up because nothing lasts forever. And I was thinking of you know reviewing films and TV series and music and so forth. And I was scrolling through IMDb's list of top movies that were all the way back from the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. And 
ones that I guess considered, considered classics or legendary. And seeing as you've been part of this industry for 40 years, what do you consider? What's on your list in terms of having to be considered a classic or legendary film? Well, I mean, most of those films, look, I, I mean, it, I, there's two parts to that question. I would answer that as, as a kid, yeah. the movies that influenced me that I saw, I would probably start with Wizard of Oz, you know? So, I mean, you know, I grew up in a different era. And then as I got older, I started to see, you know, that I went through uh, kind of that youth movement in Hollywood that began with Easy Rider in the late 60s, continued through the mid to late 70s. I saw all those movies on the big screen and I was just knocked out by time and again by movies like The Godfather and Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and you know, I mean, uh, Taxi Driver, and I mean, just great young filmmakers just bursting onto the scene and, and showing us things we'd never seen before, because it was, Hollywood was evolving, was changing. Sure. You know, there were, now you could put things on the screen that, you know, you couldn't put on the screen in the early 60s or sure. mid 60s even. So there was a, I don't want to say a permissiveness, but there was just a, this new uh, crop of filmmakers that were that were willing to look at the world realistically sure. with violence and sex and things at their fingertips that they couldn't have done in the 60s. And so we got such great movies as a result of that, you know. So those are the, you know, so I would say there were two waves, the way the films of my youth and the films of my young adulthood that that absolutely influenced uh, you know, me to this day. Now, of, of course, recently the, the news broke out that the, the, the Writers Guild and the studios uh, met and had a or put a deal in place. And now it's it's back to business for, for the writers as the actors are still looking for a fair deal and deservedly. So, you know, back to work, back on working on future projects. And as I mentioned, right. the university of this year's view in, in, in the business, of course, you're not putting the, the, the screen down and stop typing but when that day comes when you're no longer creating wonderful stories being part of that element what do you hope the the screenwriter legacy is for, for yourself well first of all you know i'm always going to write because it's my passion so i may not be writing as a screenwriter for hire or for money ultimately down the road, but I'll always be writing. Maybe my writing will shift to something else more reflective and I'll write a book. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, but I guess, you know, when I think about, you know, I don't think about it too much. I mean, obviously the, the, uh, the thing that, you know, that immediately leaps out is this legacy of, uh, of these four animated Disney films, you know, that I wrote, uh, that have had a profound effect on a lot of people, you know, that I was kind of frankly unaware of, but I find out almost every day how a movie like Hunchback or Atlantis or even Brother Bear uh, uh, inspired, you know, people like I was inspired yeah. watching The Wizard of Oz, right? This is their, this is their Wizard of Oz. These movies was their Wizard of Oz in terms of like growing up with them and and I think I'm very proud of the fact that for the most part, I wrote very strong female characters in these movies. And yeah. so young girls, especially, 
uh, in, you know, in young teenage girls as well, uh, were inspired by a character like Esmeralda. Were inspired by, you know, uh, even Jane and Tarzan, and and uh, certainly uh, uh, the the female uh, characters of Atlantis. You know, yeah. uh, whether it was Princess Kida or Audrey or even uh, you know. Um, What's her name? Packard? <laughs> well, Packard, yeah, but no, I'm thinking of the blonde. Uh, oh. God, I can't even remember my own characters. Helga, yeah, even her, you know, in a weird way, even though she was kind of villainous at the end, she takes down Rourke. I mean, the, yeah. the, you know, I mean, so there's there's a lot for people to process in terms of these characters. They think they're one way, and then they find out, oh, there's humanity there. They're, oh, they're you know, Esmeralda is just a dancer until she stands up to Frollo and demands justice yeah. for her people. You know, I mean, so there's a lot of a lot going on in those films. Um, so, yeah, I would say that that probably because I don't determine my legacy, dude. Sure. I mean, others will. Yeah. And so I would imagine that that those movies will probably be my legacy in terms of just immediate recognition. Yeah, Murphy. Oh, yeah. oh, Disney, those films. But I'm proud of, men, of many other films that I worked on. Gorillas in the Mist. Yeah. You know, I received an Academy Award nomination for that. I wrote and directed a movie very near and dear to my heart called Last of the Dogmen, which is, again, just sort of emblematic of everything I'm about, including Native culture and things like that. So, yeah, I hope that, um, you know, maybe uh, my, my career will be taken as a whole. But my guess is most people will zone in on the Disney movies, you know. Well, a lot of stuff that's that has cultural significance that that people may not realize from a grand standpoint, but as they get older, they realize, oh, this is what it meant, and this is still prevalent to this day. Before we end here, uh, I want to say, Tab, thank you for, for it. Of course, it, this is only this is one shot. We just changed clothes because because we yeah, yeah, forever. there you go. <laughs> um, thank you for 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 your patience and doing this with me. I want to end on a little segment called the One Word Challenge. So what entails with sure. this is that I'll throw out a few names of people, places, or things, and you have to do your best to say a word or two or a sentence that best comes to mind when you hear it. Okay. Uh, first one, Tacoma, Washington. My birthplace. Uh, Los Angeles. Uh, a necessary evil. <laughs> Writing. <laughs> Joy. Creativity. Passion. Uh, creativity. Uh, you know, the same thing when it's working. Uh, when it's not, it's a dark place. <laughs> uh, hard work. Uh, necessary. Success. Overrated in the sense of what most people consider success. Sure. Uh, Milo J. Thatch. <laughs> Partially my alter ego. Uh, and last but certainly never least, this cosmic universe we all called Earth that we live in, Charles Tab Murphy. Uh, just uh, trying to live authentically and be an honest storyteller. Well, you know, when you write films like Atlantis, Tarzan, and many more, it, it's hard to not do that. I, I want to say thank you so much for doing this, taking the time and sharing your life, because I know you've done this many times before, but it's always great to talk to people like yourself who have a large impact in, in lives like myself's. 
Well, Nolan, I have to then, uh, you know, you know, turn the, uh, the kudos straight back to you because I do talk to a lot of people, but you are well informed. Your questions were, you know, they were terrific and I really enjoyed our conversation, pal. Well, I, as I mentioned, well, I, that means a lot and I, I appreciate certainly. As I just mentioned in the last question, I, I asked you about in terms of the strike, of course, that is going, that is now weighing your back. The, the, the guild has now had a strong deal that's in place now. In terms of any future projects that you're a part of or other things, social media, where can you, where can they find you in terms of news for that stuff? Uh, well, that's I don't really post a lot about stuff that I'm working on that I hope goes. I, I just uh, tend to play my cards closer to the vest than some people do. Some people are yeah. willing to talk about things. When they become real, that's when I you know talk about them because so much of what you develop and what you write and what you, you have these many balls you're juggling which all represent a project that you're hoping goes and to talk about all of them i, I just you know i'd rather talk about the one that goes and yeah. and there's quite a few uh, heading that direction a couple poised but uh so i tend to make you know like on facebook on my personal page or my fan page i'll i'll talk about certain things sometimes you know well, but right now i mean the, the last thing that i got made was a something very different I, I don't know if we talked about this but uh was a documentary on kangaroos that's on netflix okay. called kangaroo valley so we got nominated for an emmy for that we didn't win but that was really cool that was you know something different for me well when you when, when something is made it's completed we'll find out about it some way shape or form well or something is in the process of being sure. made you know so i you know that's yeah when i when i'm certain because i you know it's just so difficult to get anything made and oftentimes you think something's gonna go and then it doesn't i'd rather be the only one disappointed not a bunch of fans who sure. were hoping it would get made too so that's why i kind of play Play things close to the best, but yeah, there, there, there's ways to find out yeah. what I'm up to for sure. In today's day and age, there's always a way to find find out something. Well, if you enjoyed the show, because who the egg wouldn't, and down the line when this becomes a huge success, you're gonna want to subscribe, comment, share, all that fun jazz is to say with the album. Of, of course, if you want more news and updates regarding the show, follow on Twitter, Nolan Carnite, Instagram, the Nolan Carnite Show, in the words of Johnny Carson, the Dean of Talk Shows, just like this one. I bid you all a heartfelt good night. Till next time. <laughs>